0: Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at Hallel.info, that's halle We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. The Torah portion, Vayikra, which covers um, Leviticus uh, chapter 1, uh, going through chapter 6, verse 7. Uh, places that we have covered in years past on this, if you go to holelinfo slash p24, that's Paul 24, halal.info slash p24 you can see all of the previous studies we've done over the years and you can find the links to various things that we've covered in great detail about this so when we start off here today we're uh some key questions to ask as we get going you know are these instructions we just read about are these things anachronisms or vestiges of the uh path the past of paths to god uh, the the ways that people would uh, would appeal to God in the past or these things that we actually offer today. And if you do offer today, well, then how do you do it? Because obviously we're lacking some key things like a uh, temple or tabernacle to take it to. So... Another key thing we mentioned at the outset is why are these offerings associated with a soothing aroma to the Lord? Because you would think with all of these detailed things that are pretty gruesome that we just read through, that that would be far from soothing, especially if you've ever been around uh, burning things that are not tasty steaks or something like that. It uh, could get quite gruesome quite, quite, quite quickly. So, are you saying? Are you saying you've tasted my cooking? <laughs> <laughs> well, was that before, or after the fire alarm went off, or you know, disgusting? Oh, okay. <laughs> the neighbors asked me. That. <laughs> <laughs> hey, dinner's ready. <laughs> now, just, well, yes. This is Pat.
1: Forgot it was a soothing aroma because it, they were being doing what he commanded them to do in obedience.
0: Yes. And something, something uh, a bit more about that, uh, which is actually what we're going to focus on today, is what makes that soothing. Because it's something that we'll, we see actually from the earliest days of the history of this planet that gives you a picture of what the tabernacle is all about. And also would help answer a question that we commonly get from a lot of our brothers and sisters in the body of Messiah when they say, well... But uh, wait a minute! You know the the offerings and such, all the sacrifices—they're they're done away with. So why is it that we concern ourselves with anything that's written really there in the Torah whatsoever? What relevance does that have for followers of Messiah Yeshua? So that's a a key thing that we'll be looking at. But really, to understand this soothing aroma is really key to understanding. Um, more about what the Lord is actually looking for in this and a big problem that happened with Israel later in its history. So, moving on here, we ended our last section, the end of Exodus, with the construction of the tabernacle and the, the cloud with the, the presence of the Lord moving into the tabernacle and everyone moving out. So you're like, okay, you've got this, this tabernacle, this tent that's built, the presence of God moves in, so why are we here? What are we doing with this tent? And one of the key things we've learned throughout the construction of this is the key to the tabernacle is to enter the, enter His presence, to move from where we are toward the Lord's presence, and uh, to be transformed along the way. To be transformed when you first go in the gate of the tabernacle and all the way into the presence of the Lord. And you know, as you've seen that, you're like, wait a minute, I can't just waltz in any time we like. That's one of the key lessons we get from the Day of Atonement that you, not even the High Priest, can go in any time he likes. So, how is it that we move from where we are into the presence of the Lord? And that is a key part of the lessons and a key part of that soothing aroma, which we'll discover as we go on further. And one of the things we've seen throughout what we've seen with the descriptions back in Exodus about the tabernacle of the Lord is that he wants to put his dwelling place in the midst of his people. He wants to be in living among them. And one of the key um, points of distress is at the golden calf, you might recall, when he said, I'm not going to travel with you. And there was a... a a cry that went up from the people about oh please come dwell with us and uh, that is a part of the key yearning for mankind to dwell with the creator of heaven and earth and what the creator of heaven and earth is interested in in having this dwelling in the midst of the people we see that in exodus 25 verses 8 and 9 let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. And according to all that I'm going to show you is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furniture. So, just so you shall construct it. So when you see there in the um, in the apostolic writings, when they talk about the shadow, the appointed times of God being a shadow, you have the the tabernacle itself being a shadow, a type. These are the patterns of the actual things. So, these things that are in front of us with the tabernacle and all of what we just read about with this incredibly detailed, seems like a a course on um, (laughs) being a butcher at a meat shop, what this is actually doing is all about a pattern of something that is going on in heaven and something that is the, the substance of it, but a part that's really important for everyone to play. Yes, Pamela, have your hand up.
1: In the future, when Yeshua is our high priest in the millennium, uh, will there still be animal sacrifices? Because that would be death.
0: Yeah, that that is, that is something. Because if you recall, in um, Revelation 19... You see that death is thrown into the lake of fire after the thousand years. So, one of those things that is going to be a feature, and one of the things that you see in the Word is that you have the physical manifestations of prophecies, and you also have the spiritual manifestations of prophecies. And oftentimes, you will see that the spiritual things will precede it uh, before sometimes the the physical things and uh, it's kind of an interesting give and take that you have between the physical and the spiritual but oftentimes there are the physical parts of that now uh, we've talked about on a number of occasions about the uh, the so-called third temple that's described in in uh, both in revelation to a limited degree but in great detail in the book of ezekiel that this uh, in its proportions and such, seems to be a a <laughs> how, how should I say it? a very large outsized um, structure that is put on the earth. So there are a lot of features of it that have a lot of spiritual ramifications, but there is a possibility that these are also going to be physical manifestations of it. So it's one of those things that you cannot discount it, but you also just like what we're going over here today, to realize that these are all a pattern of the the things that are coming, that the things that are the lasting, the things that are the real dwelling place of God. So, um, I hope that answers the question. It is you know, it's still a mystery as to how these things occur, but the one of the things that will be, uh, looking at here further, is that just as it's talking about a pattern, the um, that's also why the the offerings continued on, even after the death and resurrection of Yeshua, is that these things were not the effectual things in and of themselves, they were patterns and types of the things that were actual. They were reminders. They were physical reminders of the things that are the heavenly actual things, just like the appointed times are memorials in time of the things that are going on, the things that will happen, that have happened, and are happening now. So, it's always an important thing to remember, and a a key part of what we're talking about with this soothing aroma to the lord to never lose sight of because you can bring something in that is exactly what god had commanded yet it will uh be abhorrent it won't be a soothing aroma to the lord so that is kind of a preview of coming attractions here and as we move forward as you see, like in the dedication of the first temple that Shlomo or Solomon did, and uh, recorded there in First Kings chapter 8, where he's uh, praying over the temple as it's being dedicated. First uh, Kings 8.27 says, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you, how much less this house which I have built. So, that is kind of the uh kalva chomer in in reverse, it's more like the the Homer Vakal there. Basically the instead of the um the earthly uh example or the less important example being accepted as true, proving something that is a more weighty or a heavenly or a spiritual truth thus we have the reverse here of what uh, shlomo is getting at by saying well heaven cannot contain you that is the reality there that is the the homer the 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 heavy part of this but look at the lighter side of that the pattern the type of the the building that he built which you know when we've talked about that in times past the dimensions of it were uh, definitely supersized from the tabernacle, the tent that, was, uh, that we are looking at here today and was described the, in the latter chapters of Exodus. So, even that bigger building would not contain the Lord. And, indeed, the, the earth itself not contain all of what the Lord is. But, the Lord is making His presence appearing in this cloud in a particular place, the place where he decides to put his name. So that is a mystery in and of itself, like what, the, the, what King Shlomo brings up, that heaven cannot contain the Lord, but the Lord decides to make an appearance to put his name, put his presence in a particular place. That is a mystery. How, how could that possibly happen? Well, when you're the creator of heaven and earth, that's, as the old adage goes, uh, can God create a rock that he cannot lift? Well, (laughs) the one who creates all matter that would best say, no, he cannot create a rock that he cannot lift. So, that's what you call a uh, category error in logic. So, thus we're talking about here today about the things coming into the courtyard, coming in through the front of the tabernacle toward the presence of God. And this is an artist's description here of of various aspects of what it may have looked the bronze-copper altar and the bronze-copper wash basin for the the feet and for the hands for the priesthood uh, moving through in and out of the holy place. So, one of the key things about vocabulary here as we go through uh, offering or gift is the hebrew word uh, korban we'll be talking a lot about korban and the word translated holy is um, most often uh, kodesh clean is tahor and unclean is tamay and we'll be talking a bit more about these as we go on kadosh Basic meaning for that is that which is apart, that which is sacred. So, apartness, sacredness, and it comes from the verb. As Hebrew words, uh, Hebrew words do, you start with the action word of it and then go to the adjectives and the noun applications for it. So, you start with the kadash um, and some... Linguists have traced it back to a root word to mean uh, cod for to cut. And perhaps that is what this idea that you have something that's a whole and then you cod or you cut off something from that. And then that becomes kadosh or separate from what it was originally. So that's where we get this term sanctify means to make separate, to make holy means to make separate to set it apart from something else that is a key thing to realize because uh, you, you get this this picture that comes into the common vernacular of holier than thou where you think that you are special in and of yourself okay what is actually that which makes you special thus we get a couple of key passages here uh, from Exodus 31, verse 13, where it says, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, Surely you shall observe my Shabbats, for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Uh, Mikadesh. That I am the one who sets you apart. That is absolutely key here. So, one of the memorials that Shabbat is is that it is because the Lord is the one that sets apart people for the kingdom that takes them from the world and moves them out into a new group a new group the people of God and that as a key part of what is going on in Acts chapter 10 about the uh, sheet full of animals and lifting them up from the nations. The punchline of that vision is that the people that were once common are now being brought out. They are being cut from the rest of the world, cut from the world that is apart from God. Now they're being brought to, uh, t- together with God, which is... It is interesting when you, when you think about the situation here because how did the world start out? Was there a apart from God? No. That's what the whole thing of the garden experience was, was that they were in the presence of God and talked about that they would encounter God on a regular basis. And then there was the part where uh, they decided to follow after their own desire for the tree of knowledge of good and bad and then they were cut off separated from the presence of god made distance from it so then there was the realm of the god and the not god the the in the presence of god and not in the presence of god so thus from the garden there's been the effort to then be cut off from the not god and be brought back into the realm of the kingdom of god again and then you see the resolution of the story as it's revealed in the prophets and the book of revelation and elsewhere in apostolic writings where you have the dwelling place of god is once again with mankind just like in the garden and the type or the pattern of which was described with the tabernacle itself, with the dwelling place of the creator of heaven and earth in the midst of the people once again. So the people are not uh, separate from God because when we see at the end that there is no separate from God, which is one of the key things of the lake of fire is that it brings to an end that there is anything that is separate from God. Is death, the grave, sin, it all goes into the lake of fire, and there is no more separate from God. There's not the kingdom of God and then some people going on and on south of heaven, so to speak. That is not the realm of the way that the new heavens and the new earth is going to be. So, another passage we'll be getting to in some weeks ahead in Leviticus 20, verse 8. You should keep my statutes and practice them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Why do you keep the statutes and practice them? Because you're separate. How did you become separate? Because the Lord made you separate. He cut you off from the world, the, the realm of not God, and has now made you a part of the realm of God the way it was in the beginning and the way it will be in the future. So one <laughs> of the the interesting things about this connection with the sanctifier uh, is a fun passage from Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 10 and it describes that the Lord is the one who you know it says I search the heart I test the mind and very germane to our discussion here today in the first uh 5 Six chapters of Vayura is that that idea of "I test the mind." In Hebrew, it's uh, kilya which is kidneys. So what is all this discussion of kidneys and guts and everything else when the passage we just talked about? It is key to that which is internal, that which is, uh, we would say, best described as uh, the mind, the, the, in, the inward parts. The inside, the things that are hidden from the world, but not hidden from us. Maybe some of us hide from ourselves what's really going on inside of ourselves, but those things are known to heaven. So, uh, that that realm of the hidden within us is, is not uh, unknown to the creator of heaven and earth, but that is truly what the Lord is looking at and testing, looking to see what's really going on there, not the show on the outside. As we'll be seeing uh, soon, that is certainly not what's looked at. And just a description of the, the, one of the, the blessings for the hand-washing when it's talking about, you know, I am the one who sanctifies you. That is a key thing to always remember as to why it is that we would look to uh follow along with god's instructions this in particular instruction is more like a following after the the pattern of the priesthood applied to modern life could more of a a tradition or spiritual practice on that so Moving on to our other vocab word that appears a lot in the passage today of korban, uh, the Hebrew word korban, and this is the key aspect of this. is why we we're talking about earlier is the key part of the tabernacle is to move toward the presence of God because the korban, or translated offering, or I mean, some people might translate it sacrifice, but truly is better word is offering. But even better than that is that which approaches that the thing that moves uh, toward the presence of someone or something. And the key, someone, that this is all in the context of is the Lord's presence. So moving closer to the Lord's presence in the process. And a key thing that we'll see throughout the book of uh, Vaikra is that the Korban does not remove sin, but God allows the Korban to approach his presence because it is tahor and which we'll be getting to shortly but this is a key aspect of understanding the offering is that it does not remove sin but how soothing it smells so to speak is what removes sin we'll be getting to more of that as we move along here but now on to tahor the the hebrew word tahor uh, translated clean, but probably a better way to put this is that it is fit to approach the presence of God. Because as we'll be seeing as we go throughout the Vayikra, that there are things that are tahor, which, uh, and tame that may not be, you could say things that are uh, diabolical or some sort of uh, character flaw. We'll see that these are things that just happen in life happen in the lives of men happen in the lives of women there's just way that humanity works and the occasions of life that you'll end up in one situation or another situation but just in the process of it that these that that which is to horror is that which is fit to move into the presence of God because the whole part of the pattern of the tabernacle is that this, the tabernacle is all about you know uh, giving life, bringing life. And the things that may be more around decay and death and other aspects of that are things that are not in the realm. Not in the realm of the creator of heaven and earth. So, now on to Tamei. So Tame translated unclean, but really you might say better to be translated as not fit to approach or unfit to approach. And um, one person put that as before Adam and Eve sinned there was no rich one fitness because humans had never experienced death. So that unfitness to approach the presence of God, once there was death, that whole part of being cod or cut off to made separate from the presence of God, um, <laughs> that was one of the aspects that brought death into the reality of humanity. And thus, that's something that death, not really a big aspect of the presence of God, so not a part of the pattern that is being emphasized by the presence of god in the tabernacle so now one of the 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 key aspects of it that we get in as well if um if being tame being unfit to approach the presence of the lord is not sinful then why can't someone who is tame approach into the presence of god it's because he's saying this is the pattern of what i'm putting here if you don't want to uh, go along with the pattern you are now in rebellion you say i don't want to but i want to i want to approach lord says um i'm I'm doing a thing here i'm trying to you know uh, reach out to humanity Uh, i said don't approach like this you decide to do it anyway um <laughs> the Yeshua told a similar parable about the guy who uh just decided to come in to a banquet with his own clothes on and uh he was asked, Well, why why are you in here like this? And he had nothing to say. Because there is nothing to say. If if there is a quote dress code to get in and you decide not to take the uh <laughs> the loner jacket, so to speak at the gate, or at the front door, where they say, okay, well, you have to wear a dinner jacket. Well, I don't have a dinner jacket. Well, the host gives you a dinner jacket. So you're like, okay, now I have a dinner jacket. Now I can go in because I now fit the dress code. I didn't have one when it came to the door, but the host was gracious, had grace on me, had favor and mercy upon me, gave me the dinner jacket. Then I come in. That is a small little uh, call of a Homer on what this is being taught further. Well, if you have this at a, you could say, a silly dinner meeting, well, how much more then is into the kingdom of God where they're saying, you know, you cannot come in as you are, but you will be changed at the door. That is very similar to what we're reading here today in Leviticus about being changed at the door. That which you bring in, your korban, your offering, is going on ahead of you. You are changed through the korban, going into the presence. So, some categories here. Uh, There's another one that ends this uh, passage here, but these are the four main ones to, to start out with. You have the Korban Ola, which is translated as burnt offering or the whole offering. Um, Basically, everything will go up from it. And that's basically covered in chapter 1 of uh, Leviticus and also a good part of uh, chapter 6 of Leviticus. And so, it's an offering of bulls, uh, sheep, goats, doves, pigeons. Then you have the Korban Minchach. And the mincha is a grain offering, translated grain offering. And that is, uh, you can either come in with, the, with the, fu- uh, the flour or the cakes or the wafers of the, the fine, unleavened flour. And then you have the korban shelamim, uh, translated as peace offering and of a goat or a lamb. And then you've got the, the korban chatat. Uh, and that's translated as the sin offering of a bull or a lamb there. And these are covering basically the first um, good part of the first five chapters of Leviticus. Now, just uh, going into these in a little bit more more detail on this. Um, we're looking at with the the Korban olah or the burnt offering. Um, this is... You get this representation of the whole thing being burned up. And one aspect of this, people always wrestling, well, what are these things relating to? Um, what understanding can we get? We, we we're getting the knowledge here. Okay, the wisdom. Now, what is the understanding? What, how are we getting closer to the uh, relationship with God through reading about this and you know if we actually had a temple uh, to actually experience this well part of this is it's being brought in and the whole thing is going up going down to the ashes and gone so this idea of just a total surrender now just going on a little bit more to the the korban minchaur the grain offering these are often associated with uh, thanksgiving but mixed in with some of the other offerings they are basically bringing in roasted grain that which is the produce of the ground you know the one who brings forth bread from the earth and bringing thankfulness for the one who brings forth bread from the earth and then you have the Korban shalomim, which is a very important one the peace offering and one aspect of thinking of this is to be thinking of being at shalom or to be in a fellowship or being at peace with God through this particular offering. Now, with this, a very interesting aspect um, of this, a comment from uh, an ancient, uh, it's basically le- uh 12th century Spanish uh, Jewish bu- Bible commentator uh, Ibn Ezra, his full name is uh, Avraham ben Meir Ibn Ezra, but he made a fantastic observation, which you know we in the body of Messiah will be keen into pretty closely. And he says that these sacrifices, which are the Shalomine, because they are offer not an expiation of sin—big old fifty-cent word of the day—which means to basically the the discharging or the covering or the the removal of it uh, but to ensure the continual well-being or shalom of those who offer them or the name may allude to the fact that they are being offered by a soul that is shalama or complete and not lacking anything due to sin or khat whose literal meaning is that there is something missing from the soul. I mean, this, this is a pretty profound observation here because this is something that shows up quite a lot, not only in the, uh, the Torah, the writings, and the prophets, but also the apostolic writings riff on this a lot. So take a look at some of these. And the Apostle Yaakov um, also called James, he riffs on this idea quite a lot in his letter. Uh, James chapter 1, verses 2 through 8, great passage. We've talked about this before in great detail, but this is very interesting in this particular context. So we're talking about the Korban Shalomim, or the peace offering. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, so that you may be perfect, or teleos, and complete, or holo, <laughs> holocleros, um, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach and it will be given to him but he must ask in faith without any doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind for that man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the lord being double minded man unstable in all his ways and one of the things we've seen in previous times when we've taken a look at this passage is the importance of maturity. The importance of this process of um, testing, going through trials in life. There's, we will all encounter problems in life, and these problems, we should be asking, Lord, give me wisdom. Why is this happening? So that when you go through this, trust in the Lord. Okay, uh, I'm having a really bad day, bad month, bad life, and sometimes. But what is it that you want me to do with this? How can help me endure through this process and get out the other end of it? But one of the key things to look at this is we're talking about uh, perfect results. And the, uh, the Greek word that's used there is uh, teleos. And teleos are, also comes from a, a Greek uh, form of telos and this picture as it's uh, described in the thayer lexicon is uh lacking nothing necessary to completeness but also that all have reached a certain ripeness or maturity so you are reaching a maturity through this process and some really key passages um the apostle yaakov uses this word quite a lot in his letter like in um we we saw that that uh, perfect uh, result, it could also be uh, translated as uh, perfect work, a, a completed, a mature work that you've been made a mature person in this process. And uh, in uh, James 1.17, talks about the perfect gift is from above so that which is reached its fullness your full gift that's been given from above and then james one twenty five talking about the perfect law the law of liberty so this is a when you go through and you realize that what the mature look of the law is, you see that it is a law that brings liberty. It brings freedom in the process, but it takes maturity to actually look and see it as such, other than taking the immature look at the law as uh, you're cramping my style. I want to do this. You're telling me I got to do that. Um, I don't want to do that. So like back, we were talking about with Tom a before you know, you may be Tame, but you just want to do what you want to do anyway. So, but the interesting aspect of uh, going back to our passage here in James 1, uh, verses 2 through 8, with the Greek word of holokreos, uh, which is a, a compound word of olo, which is whole, and Which means that which kind of falls out of it, kind of like taking dice and throwing them out and whatever it lands on is where it is. So your role, so to speak, has reached its destination. And that's what the result of it that falls out of it. So. Where this uh, Olocreos is used in the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the, the Torah is in a key passage uh, related to Deuteronomy chapter 27, verse 6, where it talks about when you build the altar, make sure that you use holokreos stones, uncut stones. Take them as they are, not as you want them to be, take them as they are. So when you're taking these stones to represent the, the 12 tribes, you take them as you find them, not as you want to make them. Because that is what the Lord is building, with, wants to have built with this altar. So, uh, moving on here to another kind of key passage in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 26, which gets to where the section we're going with on this soothing aroma to the Lord is. Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother is something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with them on the way, so that your opponent may not hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you be thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. Now one of the the key things to uh, think about uh, first off is that this is one of the the so-called six antitheses that you find in the Sermon on the Mount which covers from Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7 and these are so-called antitheses because uh, they they follow this you have heard it said but I tell you you heard it said I and I tell you is another way that you can translate it So, the idea that you've seen in uh, some theological works is that, well, this is Yeshua is putting himself and his teachings in opposition to the Torah and saying, okay, well, you've heard it said this way, well, now I'm telling you something different, and I'm telling you something better. Well, the Torah says it this way, but I'll tell you something better. What you see in a lot of these cases, we've gone over this in years past in great detail, but what we see is that um it takes guts, so to speak, it takes the, the Kileh to really understand what the Yeshua is getting at, because he's looking for for truth, for truth in the inward parts, really in your guts, in your kidneys. He's looking for that which is true on the inside. Not on the just on the outside, or just you know by what the letter says, but what is the understanding of what the Torah says and the prophets uh, have conveyed, and they're elucidating this further. But what we see here instead is that Yeshua is saying that not only is it just you know killing someone physically, you know ending. The life processes in their body, not only is that what heaven is after, but you must back up far further from the actual you know, ending of the person's life to where that begins. We see the, the earliest parts of that with uh, Cain and Abel, and there the have been number of People over the centuries who have seen, wow, this sounds a lot like Cain and Abel there where, you know, Cain is there and his offering is not accepted. And, you know, the as you read back in Genesis it says, Well, if you do right, won't your offering be accepted? So in a very similar thing, what was his not doing right? And you might say that this could be that which started in his heart. And the Lord back in Genesis was saying, Hey, sin is crouching at your door and it looks to master you. But you can master it instead. Are you going to, uh, as Paul puts it, take your thoughts captive and put them into subjugation to the law of Messiah? Are you going to take control of that which you see is going off the rails and bring it back in to uh, say, I don't want to go this way anymore. I want to turn back i want to to shuv. i want to turn around and go a different way so one of the interesting observations uh that's made about this um it's actually from the mishnah uh riffing on uh yom kippur the day of atonement and it says yom kippur is the when a A someone atones for a person's transgressions against God, but it does not atone for his transgressions against his fellow man until he appeases him or basically he uh, works out what those differences are. So, even there, you know, when you're talking about with the uh, Yom Kippur, it's like, yeah, you can go in and, you know, go through the recitation of, you know, for the sin that I sinned against and uh, for the sin that I sinned against, but if there are the issues that you have with mankind you need to work those things out which is where you get that traditional period of the the 40 days of repentance that's like this is like the the countdown clock you've seen the the countdown clock in lots of places so when you get the the 40 days leading up to to Yom Kippur you know, it starts at the uh the the Rosh Chodesh or the first of the month uh, for the sixth month so then you've got 40 days until Yom Kippur comes and it's like okay this is the countdown. It's time to um, really take stock. Where have things gone? Where have things gone off the rails? Where Where is your relationship with God? Where is your relationship with mankind? If there are things that you need to clear up this is a good reminder to do so. You should be doing it on a regular basis but hey, this is the time period where you really need to bring your your relationship with God and with mankind really into its proper place and not let it just dangle out about. So that's where you get this this kind of key idea of the um, the korban Shalamin, the peace offering, as being a seal the deal. Hey, uh, things are cool with heaven and earth where you get to this place where this is offered. So moving on to the korban hatat, or what's called the, the sin offering. Um, sin, you're offering a bull or a lamb depending on what status you are in the society, whether you're a leader or amongst the people. And the key word here of sin uh, the for the sin offering, is called the chatat, but the way it's actually used is rather called of purification, because you see it in various places. We'll get to when we get to Leviticus 12.6, uh, where it's talking about after after childbirth, you've got the, where you'll often see it uh, it translated as purification offering uh, for the healing of someone from tzatzarat, or often translated leprosy, but really just Various skin conditions, uh, as we talked about in times past, um, probably has a big spiritual element to that that condition. So a cleansing from that. After a Nazirite, a a Nazir, after they have had contact with the corpse, then you bring in the the Chatat offering. And also when the Nazir finishes their time, whatever they've designated for their time of their uh, dedication to be, then at the end of that, then that's a part of the uh, offering is the uh, chatat offering. And, and incidentally, that's what you see reflected in uh, Acts uh, 21, where you see the Apostle Paul um, there with the council in Yerushalayim, and they're saying, you know, the people gotten this idea that's Paul. You're uh, against the teachings of the law and such. Well, let's just put their mind at ease. We got these uh, these Nazarene here that are um, they need to go and finish their time to offer their sacrifices. Go through the days of the ending of their of their time. Now you go and sponsor them to to go through because as. <laughs> You seen in the torah we'll be getting to it uh soon that it is uh quite a uh, costly offering that you offerings that you bring at the end of it but the the key part of what the chat is comes from the um the verb of chata, which means to miss the mark to deviate but also it's used in the context of to purify so it, it seems very odd that you've got this this picture of it missing. People always say that you like you're missing or what what you're shooting at, uh, some, like an arrow going to a target and it misses. So that's it has khata uh, didn't hit the target. It went somewhere else. But the in- interesting thing is that you get this picture of purifying, and you know perhaps it may be in the in the realm of like okay. You were deviating before. Now you're going to deviate from your deviation, which means it's kind of like algebra. (laughs) You got two negatives and then you have positive. So if you deviate from your deviation, you've actually gone back onto the the path that you're going again. Or so, uh, moving on to a very interesting passage here in Leviticus chapter four, verses five through seven, talking about the korban hatat. Then the anointed priest is to take some of the blood of the bull and bring it into the tent of meeting. The priest shall dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of the blood seven times before the Lord, in front of the veil of the sanctuary. The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. And all the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So, a number of uh, commentators over the centuries have noted, "Wow, there's a whole lot of uh, seven times this, sevens of this, sevens of that." We've got the days of creation. You've got the the seventh month being the pivotal month of the uh, the day of blowing horns or you know feast of trumpets. You've got the day of atonement Yom Kippur. You've got the feast of tabernacles Sukkot. You've got all those wrapped. In, it's like you're you're bringing. These the the spiritual year of Israel in for a landing, and also it's a launching point uh, for the times of the Yobel or the the Jubilee years. But you have uh, this being an extremely pivotal year. So seven. Wrapped up with also the days of creation, bringing those things to a conclusion. Uh, Variation on the word Shavah, which is a little bit different, but you've got that picture of uh, Shavah also wrapped up with oath. So, if something is made certain, it is uh, connected to the number seven. So, with this, you're like, okay, things coming to a completion, you're bringing... Uh, things to a to a conclusion. You're bringing it to a pinnacle. So, an interesting thing to think of is maybe that with the seven folds uh, sprinkling in front of the veil, there is pointing to this uh, this core bond the the petitioner via the blood that's coming in on on his behalf. That this is you know it goes up to the altar of incense. So perhaps the the prayer then going up as incense, is very similar to what Yeshua told the woman and told the blind man about going and sinning no more. That perhaps this is the desire that, okay, I got here because there was a deviation. I've missed. I've been going toward where I wanted to go. Again, this is the unintentional. And I did not get it. The, something deviated me from the from the path toward the presence of God, so I want to turn around and I don't want to go this way anymore. I don't want to be separated anymore. Now perhaps this should also be an, an a the the sprinkling of the seven times there before uh, the the veil and also with the on the horns of the altar, this could also be a view from heaven as like we want to put this sin thing, this missing from entering the presence of God, we want to put this to an end, but now made me think of the passage there in Daniel chapter nine verse twenty four when it 's talking about the seventy weeks that had been designated for israel and as a part of those 70 weeks, and again, sevens again, that would be to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Again, these cycles, again, of looking to bring this separation, the separation of heaven and earth, bringing that to an end, to bring in, as it talks about, everlasting righteousness, where there won't be these deviations from the presence of God anymore. And uh, another passage here in Leviticus chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, um, this section we're talking about of the Korban hatat, the sin offering, Now, if the whole congregation of Israel commits an error um, and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly and they commit any of the things which the Lord has commanded uh, not to be done and they become guilty when the sin uh, they have committed has become known, then the assembly shall offer a bull of the herd for a sin offering and bring it before the tent of meeting now a number of the uh, ancient uh, commentators on this have noticed that well what is this whole congregation of Israel commits an error this uh this shaga if they uh sh- they go astray is really what that's talking about well what is that actually talking about where the whole congregation is going astray well we can think of some good examples in in Israel's history where this has happened where they the golden calf uh they said well didn't they go astray then or how about the whole thing that led up to the exiles um you know the the sin of yeroboam uh, up there of creating a whole separate uh, list of of festivals and different priesthood aren't those all examples of uh, going astray oh well, yeah perhaps but one of the interesting intriguing ideas they bring up is that uh, Perhaps this is related to, and it's talking about the whole assembly, and then it talks about that the elders come up and they put their hands on, maybe literally it says that they lean on, they're putting their hands and they're leaning, so they're putting the kavod of their going astray, the the, the weight of their going astray onto the korban. And they're saying they're transferring that over, They're they're leaning into it, a lot of people talk about leaning into this and leaning into that today. Well, one of the earlier parts of leaning in is leaning into your responsibilities and leaning into your responsibilities with the gifts of heaven, with the laying on of hands, um, with the calling for the blessing of the Spirit of God, but also leaning into your mistakes as well and leaning in to the Korban that you're bringing in to um, to head towards the Lord's presence to say, ah, yeah, okay, we've we've gone astray, we've deviated from the, the path that you had us on, we want to go back. So, with this, the idea was thinking, well, perhaps this was, since the elders are doing this, that it was perhaps a decision that they made. Um, they bring up the idea of the Sanhedrin made a ruling that, they found out later. Oh crud! This, w- <laughs> this was totally against the word of God. We uh, we went in a bad direction here. Uh, we should go back. We told people that things uh, were not a sin when they actually were a sin. Um, that's that's a bad thing. Now that's instructive because especially that this brings up that um, unlike. A lot of societies at this the contemporary time period of ancient Israel here uh where the priesthood were <laughs> considered at the level or above the regent the the uh, potentate, the king or the ruler there. this is saying that the elders the those in charge, and the people connected to god uh they are as accountable to these things as you common people, so everybody is accountable. They, you don't get a pass just because of who you are. And that's one of the things we learn later in the Torah is that you don't take into account someone's status, whether it's high, whether it's low. You know, you don't say, okay, well, your status is bad, so we'll we'll lean on the scales of justice for you. No, you don't give deference. You don't prop up the scales of justice for the high and mighty, the wealthy, the, the well-connected, not even the high priest. And you don't, Push down on the scales of justice for those that you think are in an oppressed class, by their situation or whatever you decide that they they need a helping hand with an injustice about. And things are just or they're not. So with this, it's a very interesting thing to think of that the leadership sh- should be accountable for the things that they say are okay. You know, similar to what you uh, see with uh, when Moshe uh, chastises Aharon there at the Golden Calf. And it's like, you let these people run wild here, <laughs> you Aharon. Um, they've, they've gone crazy. Then his uh, crazy excuse about, uh, well, i just put the stuff into the fire and out pop this calf. Uh, yes, Pamela, you have your hand up. Well, that's that's one of those things that you see both on the accounts, uh, all the quarters of the people of God. Is that when you come to the realization that uh, we have gone astray, then you have to say, okay, uh, we need to, we need to come back to god and that's what's pictured with this uh pattern here of the korban Khatat is that for, especially for the leadership if the leadership has gone off the rails with um israel with uh, deciding that uh they're going to bring in the beliefs of different gods whether you know later on where you had uh yeshua come in their midst and they decided uh no um you know well, as uh, a bit of prophecy went, that the high priest at that time period said, "One man must die for the sake of the nation." So they would continue on their route, have to turn around. Yes, the and those are saying, "Well, the the." The teachings of God, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, not really every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is really still applicable. Uh, we've decided that uh, some of those things uh, went away, even though there's not really any uh, instruction therefore, and completely uh, a lot of instructions just to the opposite. We will say that uh, a number of these things have become obsolete. Yes, Larry, you have your hand up. Hmm. well there there is the instruction for that and we'll be kind of getting to that in the in the weeks ahead and basically um if they're hungry there should be the people around them to give them food and if you don't give someone food who's hungry uh those people who saw the need and didn't fill it they're accountable but you know you that's where the the whole idea of the uh, mercy and the judgment comes in is that's you know this case comes to light and you still because you're hungry yeah there's still something that you're accountable for it but the judges should take into consideration what is uh the root of the situation it doesn't get you off but they're like yeah i just i just got this uh notice um notice in my email this week from the city of fairfield they're recruiting for what they call a uh, community court where they just basically have people that come in and their idea is that um for the people who are who are uh, committing infractions uh misdemeanors things that like aren't violent stuff like that they're nuisance they're problems they gotta stop but um do we want to get them into the uh the justice system into the wheels of that or do we want to head it off now you could say various forms of that there might be too much lenience but this particular attempt as they describe it seems to be more in the realm of okay we need to convey hey what you've done is serious but we need to figure out where this came from you're not getting off because of it but we need to get at the bigger issue that's here and just um locking you up may not be the best route it may be but it may not be the best route but that is where the idea of wisdom and justice comes from wisdom to actually get through to the problem but again you have to make sure that the issue this deviation from the way you want society to go um is dealt with now someone may might bring up well what about all the unjust laws and the irrational laws and this and that and the other well there's a lot of those that people get ground up into um overreach of government overreach of the courts overreach of regulators and those those go on so uh these are not in that particular category but we're Talking about what Larry talks about with, okay, someone is hungry, so they just decide to go steal. Well, the the stealing that can't happen in society and uh, needs to be dealt with on a right, on a different basis. But people around the person need to step up in the process. Does that help at all, Larry? It's a uh, definitely quite the quite the conjury because that is where you've had the principle of um, what do they call it uh, disproportionate um uh disproportionate policing disproportionate uh, justice has come up because people said well uh they need it so they should just take it um well you can't number one those things are not the other person's and number two you know if they're you have the need you should have the people to step up and deal with it. And if they're not stepping up and deal with it, then that's a really a clarion call for the people of God and other people who are similarly moved to get off their keisters and deal with the issues. I I, I think so. I guess it would be where you would the situation where you would be given community service and part of that community service is where they would they would help you to give the community service by making sure that you're fed or something. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the things we've talked about in times past is that this justice system uh, at this particular time period uh, didn't have prisons. And um, a lot of those things, if if you weren't able to work off your debts and this and that, you would actually, as you actually say, you work off your debts in the uh, employ of a sort Of somebody else, you know, we will tend to uh, put people more towards incarceration, or you know, have uh, diversion methods and programs to go to go with. But um, that idea of how do you truly end the situation? Because you you cannot have a behavior that uh, is having people just see other people's stuff as their own. Uh, That that can't happen. But if you truly have the needs and they just need to be uh, fed and such, well, you can deal with those.
1: There was an incident a while back where um, it was somewhere down South, somewhere, I think in Georgia or someplace. And this woman um, had stolen some food or stolen something. And um, so I guess the judge had dismissed it. And, but the cop, um, well, actually, I don't think even even got to the courts because when the cop came to the scene, you know, because the the shopkeeper had seen this person was trying to steal this thing, and so instead, what the cop did is he went to the store himself and bought the woman like a week's worth of food or two weeks worth of food and brought it to her house. So when the when the community is aware is made aware of someone's desperate situation like that, the community should step up and tried to take care of that person and so that's what this cop did he basically went to the store and bought like two weeks of worth of food for this woman but also gotten her into resources that could help her not feel that desperate again in the future so so when someone is that desperate it's a cry for help and um and so sometimes there is situations where crime should be treated more as a cry for help rather than a crime
0: Yep, that's where the wisdom of the judiciary comes in. So, one of the things when we get into the topics of offerings, we'll often hear from our brothers and sisters, and in the body of uh, messiahs, they'll say, Well, wait a minute, uh, what about all those passages where you see that it seems like heaven uh, really has a thing against. Um, against these offerings that that's going to move on to something different it started out with the with Abraham then it moved to uh, things of uh, Moshe with the tabernacle then it's going to move on to, to something different eventually on to Messiah and all that other stuff is then put into the yesteryear is historical background so There's a number of uh, these particular verses. These are only just a few of them. Uh, For example, they're in Isaiah chapter 1, verses 11 through 13. Um, We've talked about Isaiah chapter 1 a number of times in the past. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed cattle, and I take no pleasure in the blood of bulls, lambs, or goats, and bring your worthless offerings no longer, as it says. Um. Here's a passage from Jeremiah chapter six, verse twenty. Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, and your sacrifices are not pleasing to me. Or there's a passage from uh, Malachi one ten. You know, if only you might not uselessly kindle fire on my altar, nor will I accept any offering from you. Or passage here, like from Psalm 51, verse 16, where it says, uh, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. Okay, okay like those are things that are stated. But as, uh, as often talked about in, in my line of work, which is in the news business, context is everything. And the context of, of all of these passages um, speaks to something that is a deeper issue. It, it speaks to something on the inside. It, and it speaks to basically, um, you could say, the people of God here need a kidney transplant because the things that are going on in their Achilles, in their, in their inner parts, their inner parts, are having a problem. So, for example, um, we, we just looked at Psalm 51:16 here's for Psalm 51:17 the sacrifices of god are a broken spirit a broken and contrite heart o god you will not despise and earlier on in chapter 51 Psalm 51 it talks about that you desire truth in your inward parts in your kidneys in your guts uh the inner part of you that which is inside of you, you need to speak truth to yourself and speak truth to God. You're not going to fool God by coming and presenting these offerings. And that is entirely what the point of all the prophets and the passages that we just read is. is You're not going to fool God by coming up with the offerings if something different is going on inside of you. You're bringing in some sort of offering saying that, you know, it's a chatat, and you're saying, "Okay, uh, we're we're taking care of this." When no, you haven't taken care of it. If you're coming with a shalomim offering, saying that, "Hey, things between uh, me and mankind are great. Things between me and heaven are great." When they're not great, and you know that on the inside, that's a problem. There's a passage here from. Um, matthew chapter 9 verses 10 through 13 which is quite interesting and speaks to this uh, directly where yeshua says then it happened that as yeshua was reclining at the table in the house behold many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with yeshua and his disciples then uh, when the parishioners saw this they said to his disciples why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners and when yeshua heard this he said it is not those who are healthy who need a physician but those who are sick but go and learn what this means i desire compassion and not sacrifice from hosea chapter 6 verse 6 for i did not come to call the righteous but sinners so that um, go and learn what this means is um, a, you could say, a rabbinical idiom for, uh, I think you need to hit the book some more to understand what it is that you actually read in this passage. So, when the prophet uh, Hosea is saying, I desire compassion and not sacrifice, is he saying that he does not desire sacrifice, or is it that... Compassion, in the sense of uh, what how you treat other people, is what is most important in the midst of this. So don't be bringing sacrifices if you are treating other people horribly bad, and that's something you see a similar passage like in Isaiah chapter fifty-eight, where uh, in the context of uh, Yom Kippur, it's like you know don't come to me uh, fasting. And such, and yet you're treating other people terribly. You know, we talked about earlier the passage saying, hey, if you want your sins covered, uh, you need to basically cover, you know, clean up, deal with the issues that you have with other people in your life, people that you've uh, had issues with, people who have issues with you, etc. And a passage that we We kind of know well when we talk about this issue of well what is it that's the the guts what is the guts of the uh lesson that you get from the offerings well romans chapter 12 verses 1 and 2 kind of helps with that because it is is as you recall from the earlier uh three chapters chapters 9 through 11 is where uh the apostle paul is agonizing over the fact that his fellow jews are just they're not uh understanding that yeshua is the promised mashiach that was coming and more than just any mashiach but this is actually a uh further uh bringing down the road this this picture of the dwelling place of god being among mankind so that He's agonizing over this and and finally uh, comes down to this consideration where you have here in chapter 12, where it says, Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. So, if you were to say this in in Hebrew, you need a renewing of your guts. You need your guts transplanted. You need new kidneys. Because what your inward parts are, um, there's something something happening inside that is not uh, getting in. The words of God are not sinking down into the inward part of you. You need to be different on the inside. Which... As we've talked about in uh, recent occasions related to the new covenant uh, prophecy back in jeremiah chapter 31 and also in ezekiel chapter 36 that was what the promise is is that you would have this internal change that there would be this internal change inside of people and that that would uh you have this desire to follow the willies of god but there's something inside of you where it's not sinking down in. Thus, you need to have something that happens on the inside, not just on the outside. So, we get down to this issue where we started out with, with this um, soothing aroma to the Lord. Uh, how can these uh, burning flesh, you know, fat, innards, all this stuff, how can you have these things related to a soothing aroma to the lord and as you can see here it's uh, just put down a few examples of it this is just in two books leviticus and numbers have lots and lots of references to this phrase soothing aroma to the lord which comes from this phrase the riach and the la yahweh and this is a very interesting passage because you've got the, uh, what's translated aroma is the reach is also um, thought to be linguistically tied to ruach or the idea of the wind with the, the, the spirits, that which, which um, moves you and animates you. And then together with the nechoach, which is thought to, um, be somewhat related to the phrase of, uh, um, of uh, Noach, which is from where you get uh, Noach from. Uh, Noach being Noah, his, his name. And interestingly enough, totally coincidentally, that is one of the first places where we see this phrase actually show up. Uh, the soothing aroma to the Lord is in Genesis chapter 8, verses 20 through 21. And uh, very interesting as we see this. We also see this in when uh, Yaakov uh, <laughs> uh, surreptitiously passes uh, Yitzhak's sniff test. When Yitzhak was uh, doing a sniff test to find Esau or saw is he's he's like uh something doesn't add up here um maybe you're trying to uh pull the uh pull the goat skin or the the skin over my eyes or over your arms or something like that Uh, um this doesn't doesn't sit right and so he asked to hug him and so he's like okay let me smell you and uh thus you get this phrase um not exactly the phrase of the soothing aroma to the Lord but uh, it's similar enough in the the way it's phrased that a lot of ancient commentators had whoa boy this is this is pretty pretty similar here hmm. so let's take a look at the uh, the first one here from Genesis chapter 8 verses 20 and 21 then noah built an altar to the Lord so this is after the flood and uh took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offer burnt offerings uh, on the altar. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth and I will never again destroy every living thing as I have done. So you have this this picture of the one who brought uh, rest to um, the people that were in the ark, those that uh, decided to get on board, the whole <laughs> extent of mankind reduced from uh, how many, there were some people say tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, maybe a couple of million people at the time period, down to eight after the flood. And he is uh, Noah, the one who brings rest His name is uh, um, akin to the the word for rest there. So he is one who brings rest to the earth through the flood with God's direction. So, this act of trusting God in the midst of this incredible endeavor that Noah has just gone gone through, this, what he's done, that is a soothing, pleasing. Aroma now we'll see this as we go into the next passage there in genesis twenty seven but the interesting play on words that you have in this particular passage is between Noach's name and the nechoach, which is the form of this soothing so Noach the guy who brings rest is also giving God this uh, nechoach, or the soothing um, It also could say comforting, because we'll see that as we get into the next passage, that it comforting, familiar. It's like out of all the violence that was happening before the flood, this is uh, the eight that are brought through. This is the familiar scent of people who trust God, who get on the boat. That is the familiar scent. That is the soothing scent of these um, people who have come through. So let's look at the next passage. Genesis 27 verses uh, 21 through 27. Then Yitzhak said to Yaakov, Please come here that I may feel you, my son, whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Yaakov came close to Yitzhak, his father, and he felt him and said, Well, the voice is the voice of Yaakov, but the hands are the hands of Esau. He did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him, and he said, Are you really my son Esau? And he said, I am. So he said, Bring it to me, and I will eat of my son's game that I may bless you. And he brought it to him, and he ate, and he also brought him wine, and he drank. Then his father Yitzhak said to him, Please come close and kiss me, my son. And he came close and kissed him. And when he smelled the smell of his garments, he blessed him and said, See, the smell of my son is like the smell of a field which the Lord has blessed. So that picture there, um, he's smelling him, and it's like this the smelling the smell is um, a very interesting turn of phrase. The commentator said, Well, it's that, idea of soothing and you see that uh, the idea of soothing the concerns that uh, Yitzhak had had about passing this blessing on were ameliorated they were um, lessened they were uh, Soothed by this smell that he thought was Esau now which um, Gets us to a very interesting point here that likewise that when these offerings are coming into the Mishkan, into, the, into the, the, um, the tent of meeting, that this is a soothing smell, a familiar smell, that just like with Noah and just like who Gitzach thought he was dealing with, thus the people, um, through their their korban that are coming in, these korban, these offerings of themselves, are soothing. They're familiar because these are people that truly, if they are accepted, they want to approach. They want to approach the presence of God. Now, um, they are not soothing, and they are an abomination, or they stink, when these korban are from people who do not want to approach. You know, you're bringing an offering saying, I want to approach, but inside, in your inner parts, in your guts, you really don't. You really don't want to approach. You really don't want to approach not only God, but maybe other people as well. And oftentimes uh, they're intertwined together where people will have a issue with other people And an issue with God in the process, or (laughs) they can perhaps lie to themselves and think, "Well, you know, I have issues with other people, but that's their problem." But you know, God and I, we got this thing going, and um, I don't really care about what other people do. They they've got their thing. It's it's their issues. Where really, in essence, we should be asking ourselves on a regular basis, similar to uh, that uh, Yom Kippur service is like going down. Have I done things similar to what we saw back there in Matthew chapter 5? Have I done things that have driven a wedge between me and other people, caused them to have problems? Now other people can can have issues, they can have problems uh, that are totally unrelated to us. But as the Apostle Paul advises, you know, as far as it is in your control, live at peace with other people. But some things are not in your control, but as much as it is, that is your prerogative to try to reconcile, to try to bring things back together with people. So lastly, we'll close out here with the the Haftarah, which brings this in, in for a landing, this, this topic of the soothing aroma of the Lord because it talks about what is really at heart or at guts or at kidneys with what this issue is with the Korban and what is happening inside of us that should be happening um, in the world around us in our relations with other people. So, we're going to be going over into Isaiah uh, chapter 43, uh, starting in verse uh, 21. Yeah, uh, I guess really 22 is where it starts. Oh, actually 21, yes. The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise, yet... You have not called on me, O Yaakov, but you have become weary of me, O Yisrael. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have brought me not sweet cane with honey, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices. Rather, you have burdened me with your sins, you have wearied me with your iniquities. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. Put me in remembrance. Let us argue our case together. State your cause, that you may be proved right. Your first forefathers sinned, and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. So I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary, and I will consign Yaakov to the ban and Israel to revilement. Winning the chapter 44. But now listen, O Yaakov, my servant, and Israel whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you, informed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear. O Jacob, my servant, and you, Yeshurum, whom I have chosen, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your on your descendants, and they will spring up among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, "I am the Lord's," and that one will call on the name of Jacob and another will write on his hand belonging to the lord and i will name israel's name with honor thus says the lord the king of israel and his redeemer the lord of hosts i am the first and i am the last there is no god besides me who is like me let him proclaim and declare it yes let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation, and let them declare the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid. Have I not long since announced it to you and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there any other God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their own witnesses fail to see and or know, so that they will be put to shame. Who has fashioned a god or cast an idol to no profit? Behold, all his companions will be put to shame, for the craftsmen themselves are mere men. Let them all assemble themselves and let them stand up. Let them tremble. Let them together be put to shame. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with a strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails and he drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood and he extends the measuring line and outlines it with red chalk works it with plans and outlines it with a compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees in the forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn so he takes one of them and warms himself he also makes fire to bake bread he also makes a god and worships it and makes it a graven image and falls down before it half of it he burns in the fire over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied he also warms himself and says aha i am warm i have seen the fire but the rest of it he makes into a god is graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my God. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, I have burned half of it in the fire, and I also baked bread over its coals. I roast meat and eat it. Then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes. A deceit, his deceived heart has turned him astride, and he cannot deliver himself nor say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? So, as we close out things here today, one of the key things that we should be taking out of this is that uh, this experience of the the corbonotes the things that approach into the presence of God, is something that we can experience every day. We can experience the uh, the the sense of realizing that we have gone astray. You know, we have been sometimes informed. Other people come to us and said, "Okay, yeah, we've got this problem. You need to turn and go back." We can experience the fellowship of with man and and with heaven and. We can uh, turn around and go a different way. And that way that we, we should be going is toward the presence of the Lord. And into his presence, we should want to be on a regular basis. Now, the interesting part is we are going through with the Korban Chatat, of going up to the, the veil and sprinkling before it. You know, we have that promise that's um, talked about in through uh, foretold with the the pattern of yom kippur the day of atonement but also something that is uh, shown forward with the uh, coming of the word of god made flesh and kind of emphasized there in the letter to hebrews that there is the way that's made through the veil so that we can truly go into the presence of god but not just Wantonly or any way we want, but we go in because the one who takes us there. And that picture of Yom Kippur and the Korban Khatat and the Korban Shalomim and the Korban Olah and the Korban Mincha, all of these are pointing towards uh, that we will have no guilt, no sin remorse the things that are blocking between us and the presence of God so that's like you say great news that this way into the presence of God is made sure and made open to us and the the way that we go in is that when we go up in smoke sort of say or when our offering goes in that we are soothing when we get there because We are true in our inward parts that we truly want to be in the presence of God. And (laughs) uh, the Lord is not going to be fooled if we aren't really true inside of ourselves and there is still something between other people and us, or us and other people, or or, our uh, desire is not to be in the presence of God. That is something that we can't fool. Any last thoughts before we close out things today? All right.
1: Well, the, you know, the easiest person to fool is yourself. <laughs> and so um, since the easiest person to fool is yourself, oftentimes you almost have to ask God, you know, let, show me what's going on. Show me what is really going on. Because we might be oblivious to something. Mm. So, um, whether it's our relationship with him or it's our relationship with someone else. We might be clueless, but we, have to, we need to ask him to show us where, how we're fooling ourselves about a situation.
0: Mm. Yeah, that's my, one of the greatest psalms is uh, also a dangerous one about uh, asking God to reveal everything about us and then lead us on into the pass of everlasting <laughs> that's a it's it's what we all need to ask for but it's also very dangerous
1: oh that he doesn't do it all at once if he did we would be overwhelmed and probably commit suicide mm. we'd be overwhelmed he only gives us what we can handle in the time that we need to handle it
0: i mm. oh, mean larry you have your hand up
1: I'm thinking we're also the easiest one for us to forgive.
0: Now, mm-hmm. well, sometimes um, I know I know from my my own <laughs> my own experience. Um, I I have a uh, a very good uh, instant replay tape that plays uh, quite quite vivid um, vivid instant replays of all the the terrible things that I've done. So you know you you remember that that great promise that uh, he's going to remember our sins no more, but um, then also it's like we have to then uh, <laughs> realize that we should not remember our sins no more, that they are actually put behind us and we learn from them and then move on. All right, well, I'll close things out with prayer. Ah, uh, Daniel. Do, yeah, that you have, uh, the drawback of, of those those memories is that you don't remember the lesson unless you remember the sin that came with it. Unfortunately, uh, yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's a catch. But you have to have both. Don't remember the sin, however, keep the lesson. But then you have to remember the sin. How you got the lesson? Yeah, it's a it's a messy situation. <laughs> yeah.
1: Sin is yeah. messy.
0: Yeah, you, you get. Um, I often think about it every, every time you go through and you read like Acts and Paul's letters and you realize that uh, he was interacting with, with people as as it records there in Acts, they were afraid of him because, you know, they may have lived personally through his persecution or heard about it by reputation, but now then to become in fellowship as a brother with them? Oh my. <laughs> so, you see that uh, kind of pouring out in his letters that, wow, he – that. Uh, he was deeply um, grateful for the Lord's repentance, and I'm sure he probably was uh, repented a lot with his uh, fellow believers in all those congregations that he probably personally uh, persecuted. Now, praise God that uh, God also has that much mercy on us as well. All right, let's uh, close with prayer. Father God, we we thank you and praise you for giving us these words. We thank you for giving us the Torah, for giving us your prophets, for giving us the apostles, and for giving us the Word made flesh, for giving us your Spirit to bring all of the things that you've promised and you've planned for, to bring them to fruition and to bring us back into your presence. And Father, we just ask that you continue to strengthen us and guide us, give us wisdom, discernment, that we can... We can take the good news of your kingdom into the world and be a part of the ingathering of the nations into your kingdom. And Father, we really look forward to that day. In the name of your Son, Yeshua. Amen. You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at halel.info. That's HALlE l.info Halel.info.